0: Hello again, dear listener. This, in case you were wondering, is the start of the show. Welcome to FINE, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on February 26, 2018 at the Lido, which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations, or Vancouver, B.C., You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Maddie Vu, Michael Lemiski, Annette LaPointe, Danny Ramadan, and Amber Dawn. Throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Linda Fox, who you can find on Bandcamp. The track we started the show with today is called Leopards Break Into My Heart. And I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. All right, let's get on with it. Up first, we have the bad boy of Vancouver comedy, Matty Vu. You can catch his show, Blood Feud, on the third Saturday of every month at Little Mountain Gallery, or stand up at Improv Battle It Out, comedically. Here's Matty Vu.
1: Hello! Still almost short enough. Don't worry, no one gets it right, I'm very tiny. Hi everybody, I got here through a car to go. It's my new life now because I sold my car. It was a long 10-year relationship with a car no one cares about, (laughs) I'll cry if I talk about it more. (laughs) But I'm I'm adjusting to my new car to go life. Like I recently found out, it'll beep at you aggressively if you do donuts in the snow. (laughs) Uh, it's also fun, if it breaks on you, you can just like leave it in traffic and walk away. <laughs> I called them, I was like, hey, your car's dead on 1st Ave, <laughs> deal with it, bye! <laughs> and then I got into a new cardigo. <laughs> uh, the worst part about um, a Cardigo is that when I like locked my phone in a Cardigo, <laughs> And if you guys don't know how to open a Cardigo, you do it with your phone. <laughs> So I basically just had to sit beside a locked car until a stranger walked by and then had to convince them to talk to me and then download an app on their phone (laughs) with a credit card (laughs) and then let me into it to steal a phone. Luckily, I look like a lost child, so he did it happily. (laughs) This happened uh, uh, like a a month ago, and I see this man in my neighborhood all the time now, (laughs) and I don't know how to interact with him. (laughs) What are the social norms of dealing with a man who unlocked a car for you? (laughs) I invited him to come over and play video games. (laughs) He said no. (laughs) Turns out I don't know how to make friends after the age of 10. (laughs) Um growing up I didn't have a lot of like strong influences m- in media as like an Asian person who wasn't into kung fu. <laughs> like I basically had two influences on television. One was a man named Martin Yan from the television show <laughs> Yan Can Cook. One guy knows what it is. <laughs> For you everybody else who doesn't know this show, it's basically a show where an Asian man makes stir-fry every episode. <laughs> But I am very good at making stir fry now, so it all worked out. And the only other influence I had, like in comedy especially, was from Mad TV. It was uh, this character named Mrs. Swan. It was just like a a sassy Asian lady, which turns out was played by a white Jewish lady. So that sucks, that That I don't even get that. But I am sassy as hell. I'm so sassy that I got fired from my last job because of it. Like I worked at a security company with a lot of ex-cops and ex-military. And they're like, you're too mean in the office. (laughs) 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 Like I have resting this face. (laughs) You guys need to get it together. (laughs) I was unemployed for so long that like I was like, hmm, maybe I should like just do like a like a quick labor job, or like retail job. Uh, and cause like dispensaries are everywhere, I thought that would be a cool job to do. The problem is I don't smoke pot, like I don't get pot, I'm not like some pot boy or whatever they're called. <laughs> but I figure it can't be hard to like get the job. Those guys seem very dumb. <laughs> I feel like my mom would have been very disappointed in me if I started like doing pot. (laughs) (laughs) Or would she be more disappointed if I never used my staff discount? (laughs) Because sometimes the stereotype is real. (laughs) My mom's also very disappointed in me because I don't have a child yet, because I'm like in my 30s. I know I don't look it, but like, she says it's very unlucky for someone my age to not have a child. Not in my world, lady. (laughs) Doing great. She says I should have a kid, so when I'm older, I'll have someone to take care of me, which is very concerning, because that assumes that I'm going to have to take care of her when she's older, and I can't take care of her and a baby. and myself (laughs) that's three more people than i can handle (laughs) i think the advantage of having a baby though would be like i'd get to do more crafts (laughs) like i love doing crafts (laughs) like if you saw me like on the streets and i was like randomly covered in glitter for some reason (laughs) Someone would be like, hey, that boy's into strippers. And I'd be like, no, just like it. I had a mishap with a glue gun. <laughs> Leave me alone. Like I like going to Michael's. Like I'll spend like a whole day at Michael's. <laughs> you know what I mean? You ever spent a whole day at Michael's, sir? No, I get it. We're different people. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever needed to like go poop in public? Yeah, go to Michael's. It'll be the cleanest bathroom you ever see. (laughs) I'm the only one who uses the men's room. (laughs) I have a lot of issues with bathrooms because I'm very short. And then a lot of times a urinal will come up to hear on me. And I have to go to the stall and pee like a lady, which is very uncomfortable. Socially, physically very comfortable. (laughs) I don't know why we're not all doing it all the time. There's some bad bathrooms in this city too. Like I've been in like a sushi place where there was one urinal like this and one like this. So if two people are there, your butts are going to touch. And that's not a thing you should say to someone peeing next to you. It's like, hey, our butts are going to touch and he left. (laughs) He didn't even unzip yet. He was like, bye, I don't need to deal with your weird butt situation. That's why I can't have a baby. <laughs> I feel like I also can't have a baby because like, I'm a narcissist. You know, like, I have to be the most adorable thing in a house. <laughs> How many times can I do that and you guys are going to like it? <laughs> yeah. I'm also, like, not going to have a kid because, like, I, I'm, like, not with anybody. <laughs> I, like I'm a straight man or whatever. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I can I can pull off that I huh? fuck women rights. <laughs> Mostly because I like to dress like a cool lesbian, if anything. <laughs> I know this is true because I did Tinder as a straight man to utter failure, but I did Tinder as a lesbian. Wild success. <laughs> Just weird when I was on a date with someone, I was like, hey. Uh, I know I like, we met on the internet and I lied, but I lied so much <laughs> that I had to tell you the truth. And the truth is that I have a wiener. <laughs> and it turns out some lesbians are not into wieners. Yeah. And it turns out everybody over the age of 10 is not into someone saying wiener still. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird place to end this. <laughs> but that's where I'm going to end it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. you been fun.
0: Next, we have Micah Lomiski, a writer and musician who is now the host of Room Magazine's podcast, Fainting Couch Feminists. And her work has been published in Vice, The Walrus, Monte Cristo, Sad Mag, and more. She's good at math, and this makes her feel pretty special in the artistic community. Here's Micah.
2: you guys. Ooh, uh, hey, uh, sorry, I'm such a diva with all my weird equipment. Um, let me just do a, is that is that like a good volume with my voice? Cool, okay. Um, so I'm going to do a version of a story that I recently had published online, and the title they gave it was All the Problematic Things You deal with as a beer cart girl, and the heading was, working on a golf course is a sexist nightmare. Um, Like, the title, this title was given to it by my editor, not me, if you guessed it was a Vice article, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably would have said something like, working on the golf course is a mostly chill, but sometimes frustrating way to pay for school, but that was not buzzy enough for them. Anyhow, um, this is sort of a version of that with some music in it as well. I'm calling it like a musical memoir. That's my genre that I'm trailblazing lately. Um, (laughs) Okay, I'll start holding this. Um, So when I was young, I golfed a lot. In fact, I was the Vernon Ladies Junior Club champion in 2008 in a pool of one. It it doesn't say pool of one on the trophy, though, so it's fine. Um, During this time, I thought of beer cart girl as my ideal summer job. It just seemed like such a cool girl gig, riding around in a cart full of booze, getting tipped by rich people, wearing a skort. My parents told me often, oh, honey, you'd be perfect at that job. And I sensed they were right. I already had an arsenal of skorts. I worked four summers as a beer cart girl, and unfortunately, it was not quite the utopia I imagined. Full disclosure, it wasn't all pigs in polo shirts, lots of sunshine, a handful of very pleasant Daves, and the opportunity to write bad poetry during lulls made for a not so bad way to pay for school. But when you're navigating a sport that is still rooted firmly in a culture of white male prestige, you're going to see a fair few khaki panted douchebags getting thirsty and yelling for the girl because what's the point of paying 120 bucks to stumble around in the grass for four hours if you're not not going to enjoy the perks of sport, meaning blonde lager served by women 50 years your junior. After four years as a cart tart, a term I would like to take back, by the way, uh, I feel it's my civic duty to reflect on some of my strangest, most problematic encounters, if only to show golfers how they might better their sport. Because this is the present day, and comments like, You're gonna make a great wife someday, and I'm gonna give you an extra toonie because you look so pretty in that hat, are no longer considered compliments, were they ever? Chapter one. Oh, this. Like, fell down. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't even notice. Um, Chapter one, the photographer. So there was a guy who came to the golf course semi-regularly, always alone and always with a big professional-looking camera on the passenger seat of his golf cart. Other than the fact that his golf partner was a Nikon, he seemed pretty normal. Then one day he asked if he could take my picture. I stammered out something like, uh, I guess, yeah, (laughs) okay. Uh, because I'd prefer if you didn't, was beyond my capacity at the time. I smiled awkwardly from behind the wheel of my cart and let him take a photo or two. Great, great, he snapped away. I tried not to think about what he would do with the photos. A week or so later, my manager called me into her office saying someone had dropped an envelope off for me. It was big and yellow and I did not feel good about it. I was finished my shift, and so I took the envelope to my car to open. Inside the envelope was a massive photo of my face, out of focus and cropped so tight my neck didn't even make it in. (laughs) The photo had also been photoshopped with an amazing lack of skill and taste. My eyes had been brightened to a shade I can only describe as neon emerald, and there was a large purple butterfly stenciled on my chin. Was this some kind of bizarre love token? Or an attempt to show me my own true beauty? Either way, a larger than my actual face, picture of my face, <laughs> failed to win my affections. <gasps> oh no, okay, it's okay. <laughs> I never saw him again, except in day nightmares. when I pictured him hunched over a computer screen, drenched in blue light. His cursor hovered over the butterfly as he adjusted its position on my face. A little to the right, oh wait, too far. And there, just right. Ah, she's more beautiful than she knows. I put a butterfly on her chin, just to show that I'm more sensitive than those perverted pigs. While they objectify you, I will be the guy who captures your essence on eight and a half by eleven photo. Paper, my princess on photo paper, so pretty. I could just ra- raise her up <laughs> where she belongs. Thank you. Okay, uh, chapter two the setup artist. Uh, there was this dreamboat of a pro shop boy who I'll call Sunglasses because that's what I called him in my head before I knew his actual name and also because I never saw his naked eyes. He was a man of mystery who cared about UV danger and this combination of obscurity and sun smarts made me sick with lust. <laughs> Oh, sunglasses, don't let me see your eyes. I love how you look when your vision's completely polarized. Oh, sunglasses, it's true. I adore you for you. I wear my silkiest skirts and my cutest fedora. It's true, I had multiple fedoras. One was like a woven texture, and the other was covered in flora. Now, well, maybe you're thinking, this girl has terrible taste. But what kind of guy doesn't love a gal who looks like she could really shred on an upright (laughs) Bass. Um, okay, so me and Sunglasses had a pretty lackluster flirt thing happening for a while. And I guess one of the club members, I'll call him Dick for accuracy's sake, (laughs) caught wind of our budding romance and decided he wanted to help us take things to the next level. So on a hot Tuesday night, men's night, nothing good ever happens, Dick told me that Sunglasses was working alone in the pro shop, and it would be very rude of me not to pay him a visit. Okay, Dick, I'm not quite sure what you think is going to happen if I go visit Sunglasses all alone in the pro shop. But given that our most substantial conversation to date had to do with what kind of employee discount I can score on a Nike dry fit tee for my dad, I don't think I'm going to end my night polishing shafts with him the back room (laughs) anyhow I rolled my eyes and told Dick to please stop making comments about my potential courtship with sunglasses but like all the works dick all the worst dicks he wouldn't take no for an answer at the end of my shift he strolled up to my cart which was parked near the pro shop and said that sunglasses wanted my number I didn't know whether Dick was serious, but suddenly sunglasses came bursting out of the pro shop, naked eyes shining with confusion, as Dick shoved a pen and paper in my face, ready to take my information the way his generation knew best. Panicking, I scribbled down my number and watched Dick hand deliver it to sunglasses, who made some awkward small talk before retreating into his pro shop. The outcome of this exchange was a few half-hearted texts followed by a few half-hearted Facebook messages, but then sunglasses said, you're sweet, Y-O-U-R, instead of you're sweet with an apostrophe R-E, and romance died. (laughs) Uh, Chapter 3, The Private Investigator. This guy was literally a P.I., but he also had an unusually keen interest in my weight and whether or not it had gone missing. Have you lost weight? He'd ask. You better be careful, Missy. He'd scold, eyeing me, wearing orange. Then, 10 seconds later, or maybe you're gaining weight, he'd say, reevaluating me. Oh, I can't tell. In his defense, maybe PIs think everything and everybody is worth their investigation? Uh, chapter four Ladies Who Lunch. I don't have a ton to say about women on the golf course, probably because, comparatively speaking, there aren't a lot of women on the golf course. Yes, we had a ladies' day, and no, I didn't make much money from it. Yes, there were bona fide snobs and 65-year-old queen bees who wore nothing but pastel, but not everyone was like that. What did bother me, though, was the lack of meaningful interactions I had with a handful of women I saw every day. The men genuinely wanted to talk to me and see me. And even though some of these guys were unenlightened bird brains, it feels overly bleak to say that every friendly wave and hello from a man had something to do with my physicality. But then I consider the way some of the women responded to me. curt no thank yous, meager tips, lack of acknowledgment altogether. And I'm left wondering why there was such a discrepancy in friendliness. Did these women resent or blame me for something? Was it possible that by putting on a short skirt and some lipstick and my favorite fedora, then offering customers service with a smile from my candy-striped wagon of beer, I was somehow catering to male fantasy and therefore complicit in a cycle of gender oppression and inequality they'd been facing their whole lives? Entirely possible, or maybe they were just bitches. (laughs) Bitches on the golf course, why you gotta be so stingy? Bitches on the golf course, don't you know we're in this together? Two birds of a feather. Just because your husband's drinking habit is my income source, doesn't mean you get to call me a dirty skank with your eyes when I'm on the course. Bitches on the golf course, I put course light on special just for you. Bitches on the golf course, for 525 I'll give you some happy juice, I am a a simple trolley dolly, but I'm a woman like you. Haven't you heard the future's female? So let's start a march right here on hole number two. I on the golf course. Why you gotta be so stingy? Oh, thank you. Okay, Uh, uh, chapter five, everyone's a joker. There are two main branches of golf humor, dad jokes and dirty jokes. The dad jokes never bothered me because they were always harmless. You got any holes in one for sale on that cart? But those weren't as bad as the dirty ones. My old pal Bob was a purveyor of such jokes. Every day he played, he would approach my cart, lean against it with one arm on the roof so that I was tucked neath the shade of a very imposing armpit, and share his daily zinger. Here's an example of one of our interactions. Bob says, hey. How's your day? I said, fine. Yeah, okay. He said, do. You wanna hear a joke? I said, "Mm." Eh. He said, Kellogg's. They got a new cereal and it's called Prostitutes. He said, Do you want to know why? I said, mm. eh. He said, Instead of going snap, crackle, pop. Yeah, instead of going snap, crackle, pop. Yeah, instead of going snap, crackle, pop, they just lie there and bang. Boo. We'll adjust this. I said, Bob, (laughs) I think you better go. There's a group behind you. And they're impatient, you know. (laughs) He said, oh, (laughs) oh, well, I better skediddle. (laughs) But I'll be back tomorrow for a sandwich and a riddle. (laughs) I said, Bob, you insufferable prick. No, I didn't, because I wanted the tip. Not that kind. The gratuity system is flawed. Too bad. It's my job. (laughs) Meh. Which brings me to the realization that you're also part of the problem. I alluded to this briefly before, but I often felt like a bit of a shitty feminist while working the beer cart. I hardly ever called out people for condescending behavior or outright sexism, and this failure to react left me wondering if I were reasserting, Reaffirming certain prehistoric beliefs, namely that the man says what he wants without fear of consequence while the woman, me, stays quiet and perpetually fears consequence. In my case, no tip, loss of good reputation and loss of job. That says... That said, I don't think it's wrong to partake in the performance of eager-to-please femininity if that's what you want, and if both parties are aware of and okay with what is essentially a transaction, but in a conservative setting like a golf course, it's hard to imagine many men thinking, oh, what a nice little show, as opposed to, ah, the world is in its proper order when the beer cart girl rolls up to the tee box advertising Budweiser and complimenting a mediocre shot. But at the very least, if a dude gets drunk on the course and asks if he can piss in your ice bucket and you don't tell him he's out of line, well, you've missed an opportunity for progress. For the record, I did tell that guy that he was being disgusting and that I wouldn't be serving him anymore. A small win. A small win, small win that I didn't let him piss in my ice bin. A little victory, victory that he didn't whip out his Johnson right in front of me. Oh, I'm a strong bitch for saying no to your nation. Oh, look at me doing a metaphorical castration. Oh, yeah, shit, I'm the best feminist. Yeah, yeah, sweet, nice. There's no pee in this ice. I didn't let him piss in my ice bin. Oh, no, now he's leaning on my shoulder while he's sipping a Corona. Oh, my god, is that a boner? No, I think I just imagined it. <laughs> oh, sir, this is a no-pee zone. Finish your drink. I don't want to see your dink. It's called a tea time, not a pee time. a small in small wind that I didn't let him piss in my ice bin. Thank you.
0: Now we have Annette LaPointe. She teaches literature and creative writing at Grand Prairie Regional College and edits the Waggle magazine. You Are Not Needed Now from Anvil Press is her first collection of short fiction. Here's Annette.
3: If I'd known what the demographic of the show was, I'd never have put my birth year in that bio. But just to be sure I wasn't the oldest person here, I brought my mom with me. (laughs) Okay, so we were having this debate over there. And the question is, the story about the bitchy ghosts or the story about the severed hands? Okay, ghosts it is. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) Yeah, she don't care. We got her some rum and cokes. Okay, this story is called The Waiting List for Martyrs. I woke up because she was in the living room crying. For a minute, I thought I'd dozed off in the ladies' room at work, because I do that sometimes. We, we have an old-fashioned fainting couch behind a divider, and if I haven't had enough sleep, I'll lie down there for a bit during lunch. Occasionally, someone assumes there's no one in there, and they turn off the lights, and I sleep for hours. And they just think I've gone home. Then the light comes on and someone locks herself in the stall and sits there and cries. I don't know that men's rooms have the same problem with crying, but maybe they do. Anyway, any rate, when that happens, I try to leave as discreetly as I can. Pretend I didn't hear anything, that no one is crying, that no one is here. Got distracted there. So I checked myself, no bra, wearing a nightie. The surface under me was the tangle of my bed, so I knew I wasn't at work. The neighbor cried sometimes, but he was a man, and he sounded different. When I came out to my living room, carrying my phone in case I needed to call the police, she was curled up in one corner of the couch watching TV. A lady of about 70, in blue sweatpants and a pink T-shirt. No bra on her either. She'd made herself a cup of coffee. She was crying. Weeping. Based on the heap of used tissues lurking on the floor, she'd been crying for ages. It didn't interrupt her viewing. While I watched, she switched channels again. I said, who are you? Oh, she said, I'm so sorry. She disappeared. She left behind the Kleenex. The, this is how a woman becomes in charge of things. She expresses an interest in a period that she, before she thinks it matters. And during the next two and a half two and a half decades, it becomes familial knowledge that April is interested in the family tree. I exhumed my first pack of handwritten notes from 1993. They'd come from a cardboard box of my great-grandfather's papers. The box was in my great-aunt's closet when she moved into a nursing home in Ontario. Some of it was family records, They were mixed in with receipts from the 1970s and programs for funerals for people I'd never heard of and who didn't appear in the records anywhere. My mother looked at the papers and told me, those might be important, hang on to them. I just want to be clear, this is not my mother in the story. She wanted you to know that. (laughs) By the time my parents retired, they were holding more than a dozen plastic tubs of mixed documents for me. Unlike my parents, I didn't have a barn to put them in, but I took them. They filled the second bedroom of my apartment for years. Finally, oh, also this story not said in Vancouver. (laughs) Finally, I paid someone I found on the internet to scan them all. Nice kid from the university where I don't teach anymore. Teaching's a temporary gig for all but the dedicated few. For the rest of us, there's administration. I manage personnel files for the pension managers. After she'd scanned it all for me and put the documents on a set of CDs, I asked her to help me load the boxes into my car. Where are you taking them? Oh, there's a recycling center behind the Safeway. What? No way. You have to give those to the archives for the public record, you know? Well, the university archives were happy to take the papers, and their next available in-tech slot was six years away. I came home from the pub late at night with the girls from accounting, and there was a dusty man in a bathrobe pecking at a ghostly typewriter in my spare bedroom. He'd set it up on the futon, and he sat cross-legged. Under the bathrobe, he wasn't wearing anything. I said, can I, I don't know, get you something? I'm fine, sweetheart. You go on to bed. I phoned my mother. She and my dad have moved into a condo in an adults-only, over-55 complex in South Saskatoon. It had a twice-weekly shuttle to one of the new big-box centers that seemed to have replaced malls. My parents liked the shuttle. They liked buses, period. All summer, they took bus tours to places of historic interest in northern Saskatchewan. During the winter, my dad sorted the pictures on his computer and made slideshows that he emailed to everyone in the family. I said, "'Do you have somewhere I can put all these papers?' She said we moved, remember? I know. I think your place is bigger than ours. I know. If you don't want them, my mother said, reasonably, throw them away. A Facebook survey of my extended family, 82 charted family members active online, indicated that several cousins wanted to look through the papers before I threw them away. One or two, if I was one or two asked if I wanted anything from the garage clearout. A china cabinet, Eden's catalog, 1932. A p- blue portable typewriter, ribbon needed. A box of glass inkwells, selected jewelry. Two vintage evening bags, age uncertain. Metal from a tennis tournament, 1948. I said, have a garage sale. Hipsters love that shit.
4: <laughs>
3: the woman in the pink t-shirt dropped a Kleenex onto my desk. It seeped wetly. She said, I think that medal's mine. Do you want it? Yes, please, dear. By that time, I'd logged six regular visitors. I didn't know any of them by their first names. I needed pictures so I could present them to my mother, but I wasn't sure of the etiquette of photographing ghosts. Would my phone's camera work? If I needed something more complex, would any of the 1960s camera gear in the box in my front closet do a better job? My cousin sent the medal, with a small note indicating that she wouldn't mind being reimbursed for the cost of postage. I left the medal out on the table for a few nights, but no one showed up for it. I threw the note in with my recycling. The woman in the pink t-shirt woke me up, crouching beside the bed. Her fingers clutched the note about the cost of postage. It had coffee grounds on it and something like egg. I'm so sorry, dear. I didn't realize how much it was going to cost. I'll see what I have in my purse. I said, I'm pretty sure I didn't get your purse. She didn't take the medal. I put it in the camera box. She stood on the other side of the shower curtain the next morning and said, those cameras aren't mine. I packed the box into my car and took it to work. On the way home, I found a brand new self-storage place just off Preston. How much? The first three months were on special for only $30. Later, it would cost more, more than I could afford but three months seemed like a long time. In three months, I could find a cousin to take the boxes in. I could emigrate. While I waited at stoplights driving home, I googled countries with friendly immigration policies. (laughs) My car would only hold four or five boxes at a time, two in the trunk, two in the back, one in the passenger seat. If I didn't fasten the passenger seat belt around the box, my dashboard flashed crankily as I drove and made a sound like I'd left the door open. It took seven trips to move everything into the storage locker. I looked around my apartment before bed. No men on the futon, no ladies in the shower, no weeping coming from the front closet. I sent a post out on Facebook expressing that those who wanted to preserve the family artifacts could feel free to contribute to a fund held to pay for storage. I thought, I'm turning into one of them. On the phone, my mother said, that's a serious risk. You don't have kids or a sounding board. What? A husband. No one to listen to you. You're getting passive-aggressive. Watch out. You'll turn into a martyr. So I went on vacation. I kept a website of last-minute discounted vacations bookmarked, and I found one for five days, all-inclusive in the Cayman Islands. $200 extra to fly out of Saskatoon. I left two days after cleaning out my apartment. I drank fruity rum drinks and had the midnight buffet. It was impossibly humid. I wore a one-piece bathing suit with a low back and put my hair up in a chignon whenever I went out on the pool deck. A friendly middle manager put sunscreen on the backs of my thighs. I felt a lot better. (laughs) I went home and the woman was still there. In the summers, I like to travel as much as I can with a full-time job. Last year, I went to Greece. I spent 10 days touring ruins with a small bus-traveling group, and not one manifestation of the weepy dead disturbed me. Greece was full of dead people, but they mostly left me alone. One woman on the bus claimed she was a bit of a psychic and that she could feel emanations from the ruins. She had cheap plastic Dreamcatcher earrings— While we were drinking red wine in the post-midnight slump of unmarried women talking about sex, I asked her, do you think I could be psychic too? She said, come here, lean back against me. So I leaned against her on the banquette in the bar of our hotel, and she took my temples in her hands and pressed on the seams where I'd hardened in the months after birth. She asked me to visualize a journey, and periodically on that journey, I came across an object that she asked me to describe. Once, when I hesitated on an answer, she pressed harder, and I felt the little cracks where the bones had fused. Afterwards, she studied studied me and said, certainly, it was possible. I could be psychic. She was utterly lying. She was a 50-something lady with plastic earrings, and she felt bad for me. You don't have any children, do you? I didn't. She said, you should have children to pass your gift on to. Then she took away my wine and told me to go to bed. And the next day she sat next to a different woman on the bus and wouldn't pose beside me in group pictures. I do think she put something in my drinks in the later nights, though. Waiters became friendly. Guys who came to the bars to pick up middle-aged Canadians looking for a quickie became appealing. I made out with one of them just for fun. We didn't even leave the bar. We shared a padded booth. One with a rounded bench and I ran my hand along his thigh and then we both went back to the dancing. The psychic smiled at me. I sat farther from her. I bought cans of Coke and kept them right next to me, away from her. The next time I had sex, it was with a man who ran a genetic tests by mail business and that was in Canada. We met online and we had a few dates. I slept over at his house, his apartment. It wasn't as nice as mine. It was a real apartment, not owned, in a low-rise building a couple of miles from the university. He wore briefs, and he was younger than me. I felt young compared to him. The next time he called, I made an excuse. He said, I thought you wanted a relationship. I don't know what I want. You said in your profile that you wanted a relationship. I've changed my profile. I'd like to know why you won't take my calls. The pink t-shirt woman wandered in from the kitchen. Her t-shirt was over her shoulder, and she was naked to the waist. She'd replaced my coffee with a murky instant from some earlier period in history, and she'd mixed in powdered creamer and something that smelled like creme de moth. I said to him, I don't want a relationship this badly. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Don't call me. I hung up. I refused to answer the next call and the next one. He called for several days. I finally phoned my service provider and asked them to block his number. In the meantime, I developed a taste for the coffee she made, and she found a bathrobe to wear while I was in the room. At night, if I got up to use the bathroom, she'd be walking around naked in the kitchen. She made revolting casseroles. I said, who are you? Vivian, honey, I was your mom's aunt. Vivian died when I was five. Life's hard. (laughs) You drank yourself to death. She looked offended. I died of cancer. I went off to the second bedroom, my office, thank you, and looked it up. You died of liver failure and cancer. I said, what do you want? I'm just keeping you company, sweetheart. She paused. Am I bothering you? I was tired. I said, yeah, kind of. She disappeared. She didn't start crying again until I'd gone back to bed. No one donated to the storage locker fund. I wrote, take what you want by May 6th, because that's the last day I'm paying for. My mother went by and dug out a box with a few bits of jewelry in it and a china box and the porcelain angel. She gave me the box and kept the rest. Will you take it to the dump? No, I'm just going to stop paying and they can auction it. There could be personal information in there. I didn't think there was much of anything else. I tried to imagine a data thief with the dedication to sort through that mess. He'd find some long-closed bank accounts, the life insurance policies of dead people, and the records of hockey teams my uncles played on in the early 1970s before their hips and backs started to give. The storage company sent me multiple notices. They tried to build my credit card, but I phoned in and had it canceled, explaining I had lost the card and someone might be running up my bills. The locker itself I'd put under my great-grandfather's name. At the time, I told them he was moving, and I'd arranged to store a few of his things until he could pick them up. I'm not sure they believed me, but I repeated the story to the bill collectors who phoned to inquire whether I had really, genuinely meant to abandon my responsibilities. What, the man on the phone asked, did that say about me, say about me as a person? I said, I think it says it's not my responsibility and you need to stop phoning. He did call back, and then there was a woman, And then they must have decided it wasn't enough money to keep hunting me. It wasn't, I insisted, my locker full of things. If others had abandoned it, maybe they died. Maybe they had they checked whether the owner of the boxes was dead. I was sorry to hear it. They should check if the owner was dead. I was fairly confident. He died in 1978. (laughs) If they tracked down that detail, they might come back for me. But I suspected they'd stop with dead. I went for a walk among the traffic wash by the storage company and saw the poster for their next auction. People stopped their cars and took pictures of the poster like they'd need that information later. The day after the auction, I booked another trip, Costa Rica, for next winter, the week after Christmas. I told my parents they could feel free to go somewhere, too. An aunt or two sent me disappointed emails about missing me at dinner. I sent them my most sincere apologies tried to picture Christmas without the carefully crafted elf displays and complex appetizers of my nesting family. Over Christmas, I was inundated with email. Most of it was from cousins who were hoping to go through the storage locker while they were in town. I didn't answer a single message. I was out of the country. They had no right to expect that I would check my email regularly. I had a sarong and a book tour to see a waterfall warm enough to shower in. And if I checked my email in the hotel's business center before we headed out, I doubted any of them could prove it. It occurred to me that if I scratched the CDs of information, canceled my Facebook account, maybe spilled coffee on my school reports, that would be the end of it. I made a note to myself on hotel stationery to do all of those things. And then blame my mother if anyone called me on it. Or blame a bad boyfriend. Oh, Mr. Genetics by mail. He'd been insistent I'd have to to go offline to avoid him. Definitely this was completely plausible. I slipped in on Christmas Day in an air-conditioned room decorated with hideous tropical plants. I had rum drinks and a large slice of ham for lunch. I danced with a divorced man from Calgary by torchlight. He came back to my room but didn't sleep over. He left his business card on the night table. (laughs) I curled up against a pillow in the night and felt someone stroking my hair, but when I woke up, I found it was Vivian, the ghost. She'd made herself coffee with the in-room machine. She'd been crying earlier, but the used tissues were stashed under the bed, so I didn't find them until morning. When I came back at New Year's, there was a typewriter in my second bedroom. The weepy dead had had a party while I was gone. They'd left coffee cups everywhere and taken pictures of each other. The exposed rolls of film were piled neatly on the table. I ignored them and went to bed, and got up to use the bathroom to a chorus of them crying in the living room, softly like they hoped I wouldn't notice. My family has emigrated from six different countries. Some of that was in the notes my uncles kept that went into the scanned files. We came up from the States most recently, not counting the genealogical branch that went to Paraguay. They migrated through Mexico and joined the rest of the family in Canada and my grandparents' generation. Others came directly from Ireland and Germany and the French colonies of the South Pacific. I tracked that migration through the the nights I couldn't sleep. I sleep better at work now. I come in early, work till noon with carefully logged hours, then retreat to the ladies' room. If someone comes in to cry, it's winter again. They could just have ruddy noses, but it sounds like tears. It's brief. I can sleep almost all afternoon before I have to go home. I haven't been able to retrace anyone's steps. I have to pick a new country. I won't take anything older than myself with me. My mom and dad can come visit if they want. If I settle somewhere warm, they might come for the whole winter. I think Greece. I think Costa Rica. I think there has to be a country beyond the disappointed things in my apartment. I should go somewhere new. Find a man whose family is old and complicated. Marry him. If I'm too old to make children with him, well. Well. Thanks so much.
0: Up next, we have Danny Ramadan, who considers himself many colorful things. He's Syrian-Canadian, an award-winning author, an activist, as well as his own personal nemesis. His novel, The Clothesline Swing, is out now from Nightwood Editions. Here's Danny.
5: I'd like to start this with uh, apologizing to Micah. Where's Micah? Micah? Hi. Micah? Hi. I'm really sorry. I didn't know how to use Photoshop back then. I didn't know how to put that f- part of. I'm really sorry. I, I learned better. I know. But I, if, I, if you let me take a picture right now, if you just let me take a picture, I feel much better. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm not a comedian. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna throw jokes around. I wrote a book called The Claude Line Swing, and it's about uh, the experiences of Syrian refugees, specifically queer Syrian refugees, uh, coming here to Canada. So if you didn't catch that, I am a queer singer-refugee, so I am the actual queer person who does the queer things. so hi. Uh, <laughs> and I'm brown too, so I actually hit a couple of things here. Um, <laughs> I'm going, I usually read, uh, like I have my go-to stuff, so I go and read stuff usually about being refugees, about the refugee experiences that I mention in the book. But Amber Dawn is sitting on the first row here and she read everything and she heard me saying everything that I've read before. So I'm reading something brand new today. Yes, just for Amber Dawn. So let's give it up for Amber Dawn. Yes, to Amber Dawn, yes. Um, this is a little story that is inspired by somebody in my life. It's inspired by my grandmother. So, uh, I was born and raised in Damascus. I left my family's home and I lived with my grandmother for two years. And then I went back to living with my family when I was 16, and that didn't last for long because I came out and then they kicked me out, and the whole shebang of living on the streets, but that's besides the point. Uh, The point is that for two years, I lived with the most beautiful, most powerful human being I've ever seen in my life. And I want to tell you a bit today about my grandmother. She inspired my writing so much, so I wrote this character, the character of the grandmother of the main character in the book, inspired by her. Uh, She was born in Damascus in the 1930s. She grew up in a house that is extremely conservative, extremely Islamic, and she didn't know what the radio is. So I'm going to tell you a story about her matchmaking and her relationship with the radio. (laughs) I'll try to to do well, I try to do, I promise. (laughs) Thank you, try. (laughs) All right. My grandmother was the woman who practically raised me. Samira, as she called herself, was a short, blonde-haired old woman with blue eyes. She was a loving, strict woman, capable of anything, including making the best rizab halib in the land of Syria and the whole Middle East, and forcing me to sleep at 8.30 every night so I wouldn't hear the news, the horrible, horrible news, on the only Arabic TV channel the country had at the time, Syrian Arabic television. When my grandfather died in the late 80s, leaving her alone with six teenage sons and a daughter, she pulled on her sewing machine and decided to do something about it. She paid a taxi driver to sneak her some fashion magazines from Lebanon, and she started imitating the latest fashion trends in Paris and selling the dresses to old ladies. The woman especially came around during spring times, when weddings are traditionally more common and more women are in need of a good dress. She married my grandfather when she was 15. It was a match made by the woman in her life. You see, it was a strange day for her. A matchmaker, a khattabe, knocked on their door, and Samira's mother welcomed her with a cup of coffee. It was 1941. She knew that from the radio. She had heard it once in her father's room and startled to her stranger's voice coming out of it. The radio was never allowed to be touched by anyone but her mother, who would take some feathers to readjust the dust on it when her father was not in the house. However, when her cousin Abu Saleh was missing in that war, Samira was allowed for a short period of time to listen to the radio's announcements. She wouldn't want to know much about the radio otherwise. She was raised believing that curiosity is not a good trait for a girl, and she didn't care to break that rule. The Khattaba sat with Samira's mother. She was a stranger from a different neighborhood in Damascus. Back then, it wasn't customary for a woman in old Damascus to enter a new neighborhood and accompanied by a man of her family. However, for that day, only women were gathered and there was no place for men. Samira's mother and the strange woman were sitting in Ard Diyar, the little garden surrounded by the rooms of the house from every corner, shielding it from the eyes of strangers on the street. The two women were exchanging compliments and a trivial chat. Samira walked in wearing her best dress as instructed by her mother. She smiled as she presented the coffee to the stranger lady. Samira sat silently in the middle between the two ladies, then suddenly felt a cutting pain the khattabe was pulling on her hair. Masha'Allah, it's so beautiful, the woman said. And Samira's mother understood the gesture. It's all natural as well. Ya The lady then put Samira through all kinds of weird tests. She brought her a knot and asked her to crack it open with her teeth to make sure the teeth are, were real. She pulled out a little piece of paper with tiny words on them and asked Samira to read to see if her sight was perfect. She accidentally poured water, accidentally. She accidentally poured water on Samira's dress and spent an extra minute or two feeling Samira's thighs while helping her dry the water. Samira was uncomfortable, but the look in her mother's eyes made her go through all of it willingly. Finally, it was time for the final test. I want a medass. The strange lady said, and Samira's mother decided to put an end to it. Her breasts are real, and you don't need to touch them to know that, khanum Samira's mother said, while Samira's face turned red. The strange lady examined Samira's body with her eyes for a moment, and then decided to back off. Two weeks later, Samira was in a white dress getting married to Ahmed, the son of the woman who had sent the strange lady. She had never met Ahmed before the wedding night. The invitation card, which my grandmother showed me once, was a piece of yellowed paper that used to be glamorous, instructed the people attending that no children or maid were allowed to come. After two older sons, Samira gave birth to my father. 20 years later, I called her Teta as my first words ever. Ahmad, her husband, passed away 30 years, 35 years after the wedding. And my Tata continued to mourn, mourn him until he died, uh, until her death, sorry. I miss the conversations my grandmother used to have with her customers. The woman would come late in the morning, and they would sit together at, around the balcony, sipping coffee and exchanging gossip. He was a cheap one, my grandmother would say talking about her dead gran- uh, my dead grandfather. He would measure the size of the orange cake I made him to make sure that no one else ate it. My grandmother would look up constantly and whisper, forgive me, husband, before, con- uh, before continuing her gossip session with her customers. You would hear him walking to the kitchen, carrying his ruler to see if somebody has eaten an extra piece of the orange cake. Minutes later, you would hear his voice coming from the deep end of the house. Who, who ate my bloody cake? He would ask, and nobody would answer. The next morning, my grandmother would cut me another piece of that cake. Aww. After the gossip was done, my grandmother used to take her customers to a small hidden room where they would all take their clothes off, down to their colorful undies, and try on the new and finished dresses. Sometimes they laughed, sometimes they seriously discussed the form and shape of each dress using adult words I've never heard before. It shows too much of my boobs, one woman would say. Oh, show a little boob, honey. The last time that breast of yours saw the light of the day was when your husband took your bra for the first time. My tata was always ready with a response. By the time I was old enough to understand, I knew that tata had become a big deal. Her customers told their neighbors. Um, her customers told her neighbors about her beautiful dresses and her jasmine trees, and the neighbors told their sisters, who told their friends, and suddenly everyone in Damascus knew Samira, the tailor with the magical touch. Middle-class women would come in the early morning, knocking on her door and presenting her with cooked meals and plants. Fast cars carrying wealthy women would stop by my grandfather's building, and the driver would open the door for the woman and help them leave the car. My grandmother used to grow jasmine in that room where she held her meetings with her customers until the day my uncle felt that he was too old for his mother to provide him with money. He took away the sewing machine and the smuggled magazines. He threw the pins and the zippers and the buttons in the garbage. He only kept the jasmine. My grandmother protested, but he rejected her pleas. I am the man of the house now, he explained. I can't walk in the streets with my dignity if people know my mother is the tailor who spends money on me. My grandmother, my grandmother refused to water those jasmine trees. They passed away slowly and painfully. Thank you very much.
0: Our final storyteller of the evening is a writer and creative facilitator, the author of four books, and the editor of two anthologies, all of which contain at least one queer sex scene. Her newest book, Sodom Road Exit, is a supernatural chosen family drama set in an abandoned amusement park town. Here's Amber Dawn.
6: Hi everyone! Um, So I know what it means to go on last, so that means you get in, you go hard, and you get the fuck off the stage. Thank you so much for your kind attention, and you've been amazing listeners this whole time. Um, And vocal, too. It's so nice to be in a Vancouver venue where you can actually hear the audience making noise. Um, So thanks for that. Um, My name is Amber Dawn. I'm 44 years old. I came out in 19... Eighty-nine. I lived in a small town of 3,000 people and the internet was not yet invented. Um, so what that means is that my life as a queer person meant a lot of travel. Um, it meant a lot of um, kind of like stealth finding each other because I couldn't just like use an app for that. Um, it meant a lot of grief and loss as well and a lot of growing. So I decided to write a book of poetry um kind of about those years and about queer family building queer grief um queer discovery um and this is not something that I've done on my own I've definitely done this in um communities that have taught me a lot uh so to acknowledge that I have always been taught a lot along my journey I chose this particular style of poem it's called a glossa if you're a Forum nerd, like talk to me after, but I'm not going to bore you with it now. What you need to know, shorthand, I'm going to take four lines from another poet who I super love, super queer ladies, poets, got four lines from them, and then I built a new poem on top of their four lines. So you'll hear a quote, and then I'll read my poem. Okay, this first one is called Queer Infinity, and the quote is from Brenda Shaughnessy. It reads, I'm angry, I'll take back the night, Using me to swoon at your questionable light, you had me chasing you, the world's worst lover, over and over. Queer infinity. We tried to make the 2000s a holdfast decade. Many of us got sober or adopted cockeyed dogs named Radar. We craved long-term goals, five-year plans, but why when this time the world really seemed to be ending? supermoon katrina cyclone stan frankenstorm ice caps melted in our ozone epic bubbles burst we knew there'd be no reply during the tsunami still we phoned kerala and chiang mai our queer transmigrant families spanned the four corners there's a crisis in every time zone it's true i'm angry i'll take back the night use me to Call Amsterdam at midnight to relay a friend's death notice. Use your car to drive to the airport and then to the airport again. Use her stove top to make two weeks worth of one pot meals for the freezer. Use my axe to chop wood for the funeral fire. Use each other's raw bodies to remind ourselves how to pray. Queer grief is a blueprint. We got this shit wired tight. Maybe we become too good at losing. Are we trauma bonded I can't speak for the whole only myself I'd sooner howl at a wounded moon yes I might swoon at a questionable light but at least I still swoon my scabby kneecaps may always weep pink I'm so often floored I'll never be a two feet on the ground kind of girl let me guess H didn't temper your passion either Let me guess, your passion like mine only became more strategic. It's not called a movement for nothing. Anonymous or rough, queer sex was our coup de corps. Many of us couldn't love ourselves until our gaping pasts were licked like wounds. Young guns and leather boots, odd ones with knuckle tattoos. You had me chasing you for years before I understood what I was after. An antidote that swote smote with the same sweet fever as the venom pain can be fine if you share the sting stomach the poison together many of us gathered our lovers renamed friends sister and brother we wrote the books that queerlings now read in college we made films to screen at sundance our scrappy manifestos got exposure one million youtube views and counting Let's erect grilla monuments to those that didn't make it. Never confuse hold fast with hold still. There's still so much to do. Swoon, I say, swoon forever. Apathy is the world's worst lover. And yet over and over, this is our queer infinity. Um, I'm going to do this like weird voice maybe for a little while this next one because um, sometimes I think white queers really need to look at themselves and make fun of themselves. Um, this is a quote from Sina Keras. Uh, Which says, which lifetime, beyond what brawn, who knew where the world, where the road would take us, neat, neat, the rows of apple trees there in the valley, red summers, the heat. And the poem is titled Queer Land. Something happened to me at Backroads Pizza in Santa Fe, New Mexico. (laughs) Locals say the land is magic, although white people are always claiming land is magic. The woman who non-consensually hugged too long wore bone jewelry worshipped Gaia and wanted me to know that because I live in the world, I must love all the world. Over her shoulder, I watched genderqueer acrobats Valdez on the pool table, a loner empty his flask into a can of cola. I ached with odd longing, but from which lifetime beyond what brawn who or what was I lovesick for? Crying can help. Eyeball orgasms release endorphins and past lives. Psychic salt water, they say. I licked a ramekin of peppermil gravy clean at Rhea's Bluebird in Atlanta, Georgia. Simone Delaghetto bent Clyde over the picnic table for a spanking juba carefully considered huevos jerry lee his bacon annie oakley and the scarlet harlots cardinal mains bookend this tour this morning this movement our mantra we are artists innovators geniuses geniuses innovators artists artists innovators geniuses and we're really hungry and infinity i presumed i knew where the road would take us not the interstate but the intersections of our remarkable survival This would be the place where we landed. I was younger, and homecoming seemed far more romantic than fuck coming. Queer fuck was everywhere, and home was a blue sky, all but sci-fi-like idea. Maybe fancy land in Humboldt County, California. Maybe idle dandy near Nashville, Tennessee. A place with a goat named Ally Sheedy. The free chickens, all kikis, that's the dream, right? On the other side of mighty America, where the eggs and the nests aren't normal, normal. grapevines aren't neat, neat. The rows of apple trees, they aren't really rows at all. Just fruit, idling, like the lackadaisical stacks of books at Modern Times Collective in San Francisco, where I abandoned the pages of Go Magazine to scope the daydreamy staff person from behind the till, their name, pronouns, relationship status, dating preferences, and kinks unknown. But so precious, with the paperback spine of the left hand of darkness, I imagined my daisy print underwear in their teeth. I carried my fantasies along scorching 24th Street. Why must I wear black in August? I always fall in flummoxed love there in the valley. Red summers, all that heat. Okay, so you know something that poets love is like when groups of things have a name, like groups of animals have a specific name. Like a group of crows would be a... Yeah. Okay. So we fucking love that shit. You know what else a lot of poets love is the leather bar. So how many people here have gone to a leather bar? Let's just hear. Okay. Awesome. Um, (laughs) How many people here have gone to a bar where people are for sure fucking in the bathroom? Okay, so it's kind of like the same thing, except the bar where straight people are fucking in the bathroom, there's always going to be that bar. And a leather bar, you don't know if it's going to be there like tomorrow. So this is my ode to leather bar and also to things and groups that are named something. It's called a group of sluts is called what? I don't know. What are we called when we gather together? I don't know what we are. Someone fucking think of a collective name for us. A group of sluts is called what? I'm grabbing a quote from Eli Coppola, Rest in Power. And Eli Coppola said, what I said I pretty much meant. What I am has multiplied and divided. What I stole has been taken away from me. And what I have stumbled upon has pleased me most. And my poem is called what? Has anyone thought of a group name for sluts yet? You've had like a divine of sluts. Oh, I like it. I want to hear more after the show. Cream pie is what I saw at the kitten theater. A clutter of cats, a kindle of kittens, a dole of turtles, a duel of turtle doves, a what, a gape of porn stars is what I saw. (laughs) This is the most used word in the English language. What a schwa, uh, 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 and a French accent, like dealer say it a what a slap of masturbators a fairy tale of jacks looking back this was a blessed event what i said i pretty much meant the internet is a boner killer everyone watches gangbangs from home and the kitten theater is now a pottery barn somewhere there are still dykes and ratty blonde wigs working a brass pole right Somewhere, a twink in silver briefs, teabags, a widower's eyelid. Oh, my desire dates me. I want to go back to the 90s. But without the cocaine. A what? A stellar of bar stars? A heist of queer diamonds? What I am has multiplied and been divided into personalities and paragraphs. Line by line edits. I have an office key. I have a well-behaved Pomeranian (laughs) I have a set of Oneida flatware and yet a bullwhip made of braided kangaroo hide I crack off colored jokes for kids who may never understand the punchline I sleep tight with five milligrams of Ambien what I have is imposter syndrome I still have a proud scar I can still speak with a forked tongue. What I stole has been taken away from me, and what, a recall of memories is what remains? Do you remember when we all got bent? A peep of chickens, a clutch of chicks, a what, a fluff of aging sluts? A muff of ex-lovers, and they're all gathered on the same coast, the same city, even the same black-lit, leather bar. This is the last homosile standing and I will hold the ceiling up with my spare hand. My cream pie is still grandiose. What I have stumbled upon has pleased me most. Thank you so much.
0: All right. That is the end of the show. Thanks to all the storytellers, Linda Fox, The Lido for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, No Fun Radio for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Linda Fox's Horson in the Void.
7: Had before. Just check your intuition when stepping through this door. A void in your loving urges to be real. A place of worship where the leopards can always find a meal. Don't you know we're just horsing around in the void? Trying to find some meaning while the, the stable gets destroyed. I promise that we're just horsing around that void some hope while all the world leaders get paranoid. I think it's just called horsing in the void when you are emptied out and taxidermy, stuffed with eternal joy. Horsing in the void. You are placed behind glass where you can't be here you can rest. You are finally just skin.